Let's pray together. Father, we are joyful and grateful for this season when um, our culture marks Christmas. And Lord, even though the meaning of it is fading before the mind's of so many of our countrymen. Lord, we're grateful for an echo of something precious that we can mark every year and that we have an occasion every year to say anew why it is that we live. It's for our Savior Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and who came from heaven to earth and gave himself for us and died and now is raised and is exalted at your right hand. And so now we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our minds have been exalted because of this gospel message. Father, we thank you. We want to mark it and be faithful with this message. So, Lord, I pray that um, this season would stir up in us the worship that is due to you. And, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society in San Antonio, Texas. Sometimes I like to call it the annual Bible nerd convention, okay? That's what it is. It's basically a, a gathering of evangelical Bible scholars and theologians, they come together, they read papers to, to one another, and we, we share our research with one another. That's what it is. It's a great meeting simply because you get to see and to hear in person from the people whose books you're, you're reading. So it's, it's a wonderful meeting every year. It's at different places around the country. Uh, there was this one session, though, a couple of weeks ago that featured authors who were contributors to a new, a new volume about homosexuality. And in this particular volume, it's a two-views book. So um, there, you have two different perspectives re reflected in the book and four different authors, two on each side, arguing a, a different case. And on one side, you had two theologians arguing that the Bible forbids homosexual immorality. On the other side, you have two other theologians who were arguing that the Bible is no barrier to committed homosexual relationships. And so of these two who were arguing that the Bible is no barrier to committed homosexual relationships, um, you had one of them saying, well, the Bible doesn't mean what the church has always thought it meant, so it's okay. And you had the other person saying, well, no, the Bible has, it does mean what the church always has thought it meant. It, there, we're, you're just, the Bible's just wrong, okay? But at the, at the end of the day, they were both arguing the same thing. The Bible's no barrier to these kinds of, uh, of relationships. Neither of those two presenters who were making that case 
are, are members of the Evangelical Theological Society. So it was no, no surprise that they were making the case that they, they were. Um, they were guests there. But what was stunning was what the other two evangelicals on the panel said, the ones who were uh, supposedly representing the, the church's time-honored view on, on, on sexual morality. What, even though they both argued that the Bible forbids such relationships, they nevertheless contended that those who disagree with the traditional Christian view are still fellow Christians with whom we can have amicable disagreement, kind of like the differences that Christians have over baptism or, or something like that. So kind of a you say tomato, I say tomato kind of thing. Some, some good Christians say that you can have those kinds of relationships. Some good Christians, you know, like us, traditional people say that you can't. Now think about the implication of that. If they are right, then the implication is that it's okay to tell people that they can pursue sexual immorality and follow Christ. That's the implication. It's okay to tell people that they can be a Christian and pursue sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage. That's the implication of that point of view. We can differ over this as Christians. What would happen... In our church, if we started teaching that, I mean, it's one thing when you're sitting at the ivory tower and you're listening to a bunch of the scholars debate things, but think about what that would look like in a like real life in a church. What would happen if people begin to form the impression, people who are members of this church, maybe people who are visiting this church, they begin to form the impression that immorality was consistent with being a Christian. And the attitude would begin to emerge something like this. People would begin saying, oh yeah, I'm sure there may be some people who still have hang-ups about things, but this is just something that we have to agree to disagree about so that we can have peace and harmony in the church. And what if some of the teachers in this church began teaching such a thing in Sunday school? Or maybe people standing behind this pulpit began teaching something like that. What if the elders knew that teaching were taking hold in the congregation and the elders said nothing about it? They were willing, let's just pretend in this scenario, the elders are willing to, to admit that they hold to a traditional view, but they're not willing to confront those who are contradicting what the Bible teaches. I can tell you what would happen if that were to happen in this church. We would not long remain a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what would happen. We might be able to gather a group of people here every week, probably a shrinking number of people, but we might be able to gather a group of people here every week, but we would no longer be the people of God if we stopped listening to the word of God. If that teaching were to take root in our church, and listen, that teaching is taking root in churches all over the, our country. And if it happened over the silence of bashful elders and pastors, those elders and pastors would be largely responsible because teachers incur a stricter judgment, James 3.1 tells us. I want you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. We've been studying through the pastoral epistles, and today we're beginning the last of the three pastoral epistles, the book 
of Titus. This book is a case study in the church's need for faithful pastors who will teach the word and confront false teaching. When we finished 2 Timothy, we noted that Paul had written that book near the end of his life, right before he was martyred for the gospel. Now, Titus in the canon comes after 2 Timothy. But in history, it was actually written before uh, 2 Timothy. So we believe it was written uh, at some time after Paul was released from the captivity that we see at the end of the book of Acts, but sometime before the second Roman imprisonment that we see at, at, uh, at 2 Timothy. Just like the other pastoral epistles, in Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, there is a strong emphasis on church leadership and upon confronting false teaching. But that confrontation cannot happen if there is not proper leadership in place. The church is exposed to false teaching if there are no pastors in place in a church. And so in the first nine verses of the book of Titus, Paul focuses on getting pastors and elders installed into leadership in the church. That's, what, that's how this book starts off. That's why. It's a matter of great urgency. And so first nine verses, all about elders and pastors. And we learned when we were studying First and Second Timothy that an elder and a pastor, those are two different words referring to the same office, the office of leadership within the church. And so I want to make three points out of these first nine verses, and I'm going to give them to you up front. Here they are. We're going to look at the authority of an elder, the appointment of an elder, and we're going to look at the qualifications of an elder. Some of this will overlap with what came before. Some of this will be different. But in verses 1 through 4, the authority of an elder. In verse 5, the appointment of an elder. And in verses 6 through 9, the qualifications of an elder. The first thing, though, is the authority of an elder. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and, a, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, notice that Paul calls himself a servant. This term is, is, is actually a little bit stronger than what your translation probably says there because the servant here is a word that's, that was used in that day for a slave. Paul's calling himself a slave of God, and he's also calling himself an apostle, which we know means that he is a witness of the resurrection of Jesus who was also commissioned directly by Jesus to be an authoritative witness to Christ's message. So he's a slave of God, and he's essentially an ambassador for Christ. What this means is that Paul is saying up front, I'm not my own man. I'm God's man. And my whole life belongs to God's purposes, not to my own purposes, to his message and not to my own message. So Paul's a slave and an ambassador, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, God's elect here clearly is referring to God's chosen people. Now, if you're reading in the Old Testament and you see a reference to God's chosen people, God's elect, you know you're talking about the, the nation of Israel. But once you come into the new covenant, who are God's elect? God's elect are all those who have been, are, or will be joined to Christ by faith, Jew or Gentile. So the people of God is, is, is much broader than just the Jewish nation. It's all of those joined to Christ by faith. 
So Paul is saying, get this, think through the logic now. Paul's saying, I'm a slave. I'm an apostle for a reason, for the faith of those people, the elect. Meaning, I'm doing the ministry that I'm doing so that those people will believe in the gospel. I don't necessarily know who those people are. I don't know the boundaries of those people, but those people exist because God purposed for them to exist, and I'm doing my ministry for them to come to faith, God's chosen people. So Paul preaches and strategizes for ministry because of that group of chosen people. And so for Paul, don't let this be lost on you. This doctrine of election is not a doctrine that discourages evangelism and mission. It's one that makes evangelism and mission flower and flourish. You remember 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10? Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul even says, I suffer for the sake of the elect so that they would have salvation. So the doctrine of election in Paul's life was not something that diminished evangelism and missions. It's something that promoted it because it was an evidence that God was at work in the world and that he was, he was joining what God was doing. He also says that he's an apostle and a slave of God for the sake of their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So if faith is what joins people to Christ, then the knowledge of the truth is what enables the elect to walk faithfully in obedience and discipleship to Jesus. That's what the knowledge of the truth is all about. You remember 2 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 3, his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. How do we know how to live? How do we know how to be godly? Through a knowledge of the truth. Same word. So Paul's mission was not merely to get people saved, but to get them sanctified. That's God's purpose, so that's Paul's purpose. He wasn't trying to make converts only. He was trying to make disciples, people who knew how to keep everything that Christ had commanded them. And I'm, I'm emphasizing this because our mission is not different than Paul's on this point, right? Our mission is not different. Biblical Christianity is not merely about the starting but the finishing, which is why we do things the way we do around here. There is a strong emphasis on the preached word. Why? Because we want to see people converted and we want to see them grow. Why does Paul do this? Look at verse 2. He's a slave and an apostle in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Literally, that before the ages began is before times of ages. Before there were ages. Okay? Paul's apostolic mission is for the hope of eternal life. He, that means he's trying to, to get... He wants the elect to believe, and he wants to see them through all the way to glory. He doesn't want them just to get started. He wants them to make it to the resurrection of, of the dead. That's what it means. And it says that hope of eternal life is something that literally the unlying God, okay? That's what it means. The unlying God, God who cannot lie, he promised before the ages began. Now, 
That very same phrase, before the ages began, also appeared in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. You remember that verse? Where it says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I think this promise in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 is probably referring to the same thing that, Tim, that Paul was referring to in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Before the ages began, God promised through his son Jesus to purchase a people for himself and to give them eternal life. What does that mean? It means salvation from beginning to end is rooted in the eternal purposes of God. It's not something that we invented. It's something that God invented before he invented us. Before we were created. But, verse 3, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This means that what God purposed in eternity through Christ, he brought to pass in history through Christ. And the message of Christ's work, his death and resurrection for sinners, is now what has been entrusted to Paul by his own command. So Paul has a special authority to preach this message. And so he says this in verse 4. That's who I am. That's the message I'm preaching. That's the reason I'm preaching it. Verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. So finally Paul is naming who, whom he is writing to here. So I, Paul, am writing you this for this reason. I'm writing to you, Titus. And he says, my true child in a common faith. He says he's a true child, which means he's a genuine child. He's his authentic child. And I think he says that because they have a common faith. What that means is, is that Titus is truly holding to the same faith that Paul taught to him and that Paul handed on to him. Titus is Paul's disciple and co-worker, we know, from the rest of Scripture. Paul taught Titus the ropes of gospel living and of gospel ministry. So it's no surprise that Paul's viewing him as a child in that sense, his offspring in that sense. What that means is that Titus, the one that Paul's writing to, Titus is not supposed to be an innovator but a propagator. Titus' calling is not to invent a new message, but to preach an old message, the one that Paul had given to him. And so Titus is an elder, a pastor in the church at Crete. And so Titus has an authority in his life. And the authority is the apostle Paul and the message that Paul has handed on to him. Titus is faithful only insofar as he is faithful to that message. The same is true for us. We are not called as Christians to be innovators in terms of our message, but propagators. We are not called to preach a new message, but to preach an old message. The one that Paul preached, the one that Jesus preached, the one that the prophets preached, the one that's contained in this book from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we're called to do. We're propagators, not innovators. Our authority, therefore, is an apostolic authority, which for me, for all of us, is the same thing as saying it's a biblical authority. 
To depart from that authority is to depart from faithfulness. Many years ago, um, before obviously before the merging of our churches, um, at Kenwood, we had a member who had stopped coming to church. And the elders went to visit this member and to encourage this member to come back to church and to, to repent of forsaking the fellowship. And it became clear that this member was, was not going to come back. And in addition to that, this member made it known that um, she did not agree with what the Apostle Paul says in some of his writings. I think it was about women in ministry or something like that. She didn't say that she disagreed with the church's interpretation of what Paul says. She just said Paul was wrong. Now, it's one thing to have a disagreement over an interpretation in the Bible. That can be serious too. But that's one thing. It's another thing to say that you think the Bible is wrong. And that's what this member was doing, and it eventually led to this member's being, the congregation removing that member from, from, from membership because of the lack of repentance. Listen, it's never right nor safe to disagree with apostolic truth. Ever. It's not even right nor safe to have a bad feeling about it. Okay? If you have a bad feeling about it, the bad feeling is not evidence that there's something wrong with the Bible. It's evidence there's something wrong with you. We don't entertain those attitudes in our heart. It's never right nor safe to disagree with apostolic truth. It's never right nor safe for a congregation or for a pastor to let such error go unchecked in a church. And so all of us have to examine ourselves on this. We have to look at our hearts as, as we set them next to Scripture. Is there, is there a root of rebellion in our hearts against any part of God's Word? Because if there is, the right response to such a discovery is repentance. The sad thing is that far too many people don't repent. And they nurse these ideas and they cherish these um, Roots of rebellion in their own heart against parts of God's word that make them uncomfortable. And so that when they're confronted with this authority, they rebel eventually. And if you condition your heart to rebel in the little things, you'll eventually rebel on the, rebel on the big things too. So you can't nurse these roots of rebellion at any level in your, your heart. And so as Paul is writing to Titus, He's writing to an elder who is under authority, an apostolic authority, and all of us are under that same authority. So verses 1 through 4 are the authority of an elder. Verse 5, though, is the appointment of an elder. Everybody look at verse 5. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Well, we don't have a record in the book of Acts of Paul doing missionary work in Crete, per se. So it looks like, as I mentioned before, that this visit must have taken place after the end of the book of, of, of Acts, but before Paul's final imprisonment that led to his death. In any case, it looks like Paul left Tim, Titus in Crete 
which is, uh, if you know where Crete is, it's an island just southeast of, of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And it looks like Paul left him there according to a pattern that Paul used to carry out in his missionary activity. It's a pattern that you can see throughout the book of, of Acts. And, and in this case, I think it would be helpful for you to put your eyes on this pattern with me. So I want you to hold your finger in Titus, and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 14. This is going to, I think, explain to you why Paul, Titus, Paul left Titus in Crete. He's doing something that he always did when he ministered in places that he, he preached the gospel to. Acts chapter 14 and verses 21 to 23 show you this pattern. <clears throat> when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That's Paul and his uh, ministry partners. They had already preached in those cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They had already seen conversions there. And after the conversions, they're now going back to those cities. What did they do? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, so here it is. There's this three-part pattern that Paul pursues in his church planting efforts. It's a converting, it's a strengthening, and an appointing. Paul goes and preaches and he makes converts in different places across the pagan world. And he does it by preaching the gospel. People respond in faith, he makes converts. He comes, he stay, sometimes he stays for a while, sometimes he comes back, but he strengthens those new believers through discipleship and instruction. So through, through preaching to them. The third part of this pattern is the appointing. He appoints pastors and elders in every church to carry on that work after he is gone. So that's it. It's not just seeing them converted, but it's seeing them strengthened. And then the third thing is appointing leadership there who will be competent to carry on that work. Now go back to Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. When Paul says that he left Titus in Crete, to set in order what remains, he means that he left him there to set in order what was still undone. And what was still undone was that third and final item that, that Paul always carries out in his church planting efforts, appointing leadership in the church. And so Paul leaves Titus to get this done. Some people have looked at, at Paul's assignment to Titus in uh, Titus chapter 1 as evidence that Elders and pastors are self-appointed. After all, look, what, look what's going on here. Um, you know, Paul tells Titus to go and appoint elders. Titus is an elder. He's told to appoint other elders. So it looks like the elders are a self-appointed, self-perpetuated leadership body. That's the way that I used to read this. And I, my view was that congregational votes on church leadership were unbiblical. I used to hold to that, that point of view. And that the biblical pattern was a qualified pastor appointing uh, other qualified pastors. There are many evangelical churches and denominations who hold to a version of that even today. I'm convinced, however, that they are wrong about that. And I'm convinced that my former view was, was wrong. 
Yes, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, but he doesn't specify in this particular text how that appointment was to take place. And I think there's evidence elsewhere in Scripture that the appointment was actually the end of a process that was supposed to unfold. He's silent about those details in this text and actually in Acts chapter 14. But if you look in Acts chapter 6, I think you'll see evidence to help us see more clearly a pattern for how qualified candidates for official church office are to be appointed. Okay? So I'm going to ask you, I know this is strange, I never ask you to do this, but I want you to turn back to Acts 6 and look at this with me. Then we'll come back to Titus. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, the apostles are discussing how they will appoint the first seven deacons to serve the church in Jerusalem. I think this office of deacon would become, if it wasn't already here, it would become an official office within the church. Okay? And it's possible, I believe it's possible, that the apostles are establishing a pattern for appointment to an official church office here. What do the apostles model for us in Acts chapter 6? They turn, in Acts 6 and verse 3, to the whole congregation, and they say this, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The apostles say, we're going to appoint these people to this duty, install them in this office. It's the same word for appointment that Paul uses in Titus chapter 1. But before that appointment, what does he say to the congregation? You pick from among yourselves these men that you recognize have certain qualifications for this office. And so I think this, um, this is significant for us because it looks like we're looking at parallel situations in which church leaders are installing individuals into office in the church. In Acts chapter 6, it's clear that the appointment to office and the laying on of hands is the end of a process, a process that includes the congregation. And the Bible says the whole congregation chose those seven men and brought them to the apostles, and then the apostles laid hands on them. So the church leadership recognizes need for an office to be filled. They call on the congregation to recognize and select the candidates, and then the leadership prays and lays hands on those candidates to install them into office. Now, you say, this all sounds very pedantic. What's the point of this? i got to go to work tomorrow. Why is this important? Um, this is important for us because this defines our life together in this church. There are a couple things I want you to see here. What we do here at Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial to recognize and appoint leadership has warrant in Scripture. We are not making this up as we go along. I think that this is showing us that the scripture says there's a role for elders and a role for the congregation in appointing leadership in the church. That's why our constitution says what it says. We are hoping and praying that our constitution reflects what the scripture teaches about the role of elders and the congregation in the appointment of leadership in a church. That's why... There's a standing invitation from the elders to you to come to us and to make suggestions and nominations for people that you think should fill office within the church, office of deacon or, or elder. Standing invitation for that. Individual, individual members to come to us and to recommend people for office. 
After that happens, the elders will pray over those recommendations, vet them for the congregation, and then bring candidates to the congregation to approve by a vote. After the congregation selects the candidates, then the elders pray over them and to install them. So we're not making this up as we go along. We're trying to reflect what we see in Scripture. So that's why I'm telling you this. The second reason I'm telling you this, though, is because it means that you, as a congregation, you, as a member of this church, have a responsibility. Congregational rule in a church does not mean congregational will or congregational willfulness. We're not voting on things in this church because we want to know the will of the congregation, ultimately. We vote on things because we want to know what the will of God is. Our polity, the way we do things around here, only works if every member is a born-again disciple of King Jesus. That is, if every member is walking under the lordship of Jesus, listening to and submissive to his word, we're not trying to follow our own will or the congregation's will. We're trying to follow God's will, and we believe the congregation hears from God. And so that should be reflected in everything that we agree together to do. That means that every single member in this congregation has a responsibility to know the qualifications for leadership and only to select those that meet those qualifications. So this is a running obligation on your part. You're not allowed to take a time out from this. Okay, this responsibility is in the hands of the congregation to recognize. If the congregation ever forsakes that responsibility, the church will drift into weakness and perhaps even into false teaching. Now, the elders have a role in this, but you have a role in this. A special responsibility to know and follow the will of God in your role as a member of this church, and you have a role in the appointment of elders. So there's the authority of an elder, there's the appointment of an elder, and then finally there's the qualifications of an elder. Look at verse 6. Many of these, you will notice, overlap with the qualifications that we saw in 1 Timothy 3. So we'll pass over some of them quickly, but the qualifications are, are very consistent with what we saw there. Paul says in verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this is kind of completing, verse 6 is completing the idea where he says, I left you in Crete to appoint elders, appoint them if they meet these qualifications, okay? So the people who meet these qualifications, it has to come from among that, that set of people. Above reproach means um, someone who is not liable to being um, uh, reproached. Or if somebody were to make an accusation, that accusation would not stick. That's what it means to be above reproach. And the reason it wouldn't stick is because everybody knows this person. Their character is publicly known to be good and godly and one that's commendable. Now, that right up front, that tells you something about what church leadership is all about. Being a pastor is so much more than being a good speaker. There are many men who want to make themselves into compelling speakers, but this text is saying that the church, what the church really needs is men of compelling holiness. So here's the bottom line. Any of you who are aspiring to be an elder, you can't teach what you can't do. 
You can't, with credibility, stand up before God's people and tell them what they ought to be and to do if you're not yourself what God has told you to be and to do. Nobody's perfect. My wife is yelling, amen. <laughs> okay. Um, nobody is perfect in this congregation. No elder is perfect. We're all sinful and weak in many ways. Okay. But there, there are certain character qualifications that have to show up in some measure in every single elder. Okay. And so, so the baseline qualification for ministry is exemplary character, exemplary holiness. And so... That above reproachness is going to be borne out in very practical ways. And the first way that he mentions here is in terms of family. He says he must be the husband of one wife. That same phrase appears in 1 Timothy 3, so I won't belabor the point here again. But we found out in 1 Timothy 3 that husband of one wife means um, a one-woman man. Okay? It means he's faithful to his wife. He has exemplary faithfulness and devotion to his wife. What that means is that if a guy is not faithful to love and lead his own wife like Christ does the church, then he cannot love and lead Christ's bride. Marriage, then, is the proving ground of church leadership. So anybody aspiring to be a pastor, just think about this. Every morning when you get out of bed and you start relating to your spouse, you're writing your resume. For ministry. And it's either going to be a part of your resume that commends you for the work or doesn't commend you for the work. But he also says he has to, the elder has to have children who are believers. Now, I would argue that's the wrong translation in this verse. Um, it's, the word that he uses there can mean believers, but I think the word actually is more generic. It means faithful. And if you compare it to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, I think what he means by faithful is children who are in basic submission to the, the father's authority within the home. So it's not talking about children who are believers per se, but children who are faithful, okay? Not necessarily that they have faith, but they're faithful underneath their father's leadership. So the qualification here is, 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 more, a, um, is more about what the father is doing in the home than what is going on in the child's heart per se. The point here is it's not just marriage that's the proving ground for ministry. It's all the relationships in the home that are the proving ground for ministry, which means that an elder can't have rotten and disobedient kids. That's what it means. Even if they're unconverted kids, the elder must prove that he knows how to lead them and to get them to respect his leadership and authority in the home. If a guy's family is a mess, it's evidence that he, he's not ready to start leading God's people. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.5 says it this way. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Okay, so the family is the proving ground here. But look at these other um, qualifications. He has some negative things and some positive things. Verse 7 are the negative things. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Those are the negative things. He can't be this. He can't be arrogant. He can't be self-willed, prideful. The Bible says God opposes the proud, right? So you can't pick somebody that God opposes, all right? That's a slam dunk. 
got a proud man, you've got a man who can't be an elder. Can't be quick-tempered, which means he can't be inclined to anger. So every little thing sets him off. He's going to split your church if you pick that guy. Can't be quick to anger. Can't be a drunkard. Because if you're filled with wine, you can't be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Right? So if he's a drunkard, can't be an elder. Can't be violent, which means he can't be walking around with a chip on his shoulder all the time, ready to brawl with people. Can't be violent. Can't be greedy for gain, which means he can't love money. If he loves money, he can't love God. Okay, so his, his, his first love has to be God, God's people. Verse eight, verse 8 are the positive characteristics. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So hospitable means his home is open to care for and to help others. A lover of good means that virtue is not merely doing the right thing, but it means this guy loves the right things. Self-controlled means this guy's not controlled by his passions or his lusts or his idolatries, but he's controlled by the Spirit. That's what that means. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Upright means that he, he lives according to a standard of righteousness. Holy means that he is devout and pious and pleasing to God. Disciplined is, is like self-control. It means that his emotions and impulses and desires are under control. And then verse 9. He has to be all of those things so that he can do the work in verse 9 with credibility. If he's not all those things, he's not going to be able to do the work of verse 9 with credibility. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Which is an interesting turn of phrase here. You've got to hold fast to the word that I, to the word that, that you've heard preached to you. And you've got to hold it in such a way that's consistent with the teaching. That's what as taught means. Which means everything you've heard and then hand on to everybody else, it has to be consistent with the larger body of Christian truth. It means you've got to know the faith. You can't be a theological nincompoop and be an elder. You've got to be able to teach. You've got to know this stuff. He's got to hold that firm for a reason. Not just so that he can be smarter but so he can feed the sheep so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So he's supposed to do this for his own soul, but also so the overflow of that will feed the sheep and then also to protect the sheep because it says to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's a positive role of instruction and a negative role of confrontation. But all of them have to do with ministering to the flock of God. It's been well said that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And that's, that's true in the church, isn't it? When it comes to pastoring, you've got to be willing not just to teach the word, but also to bring the confrontation when it is necessary. If you're unwilling or unable to bring confrontation against false teaching, you can't be a pastor. We have to make this point today because there are a lot of people who are building congregations and their whole strategy for building a church, as it were, is by saying things that, doesn't, that don't offend people. 
only saying things that they know people want to hear, which means that he's never going to be able to confront sinners at the areas and points in their life that they need to be confronted. It also means that when false teaching sprouts up in the church, which it always it does from time to time, it means he's not going to be able to address that and to protect the flock from that teaching. And what happens over time if you never address false teaching? It infects the entire flock, and the flock goes astray. And the flock can't be faithful anymore. If they're, enth- if they're enthralled with some message that is contrary to and foreign to God's word. So if you're not willing to do that kind of work, instruction and confrontation, to stand down the wolves, to spot them, to oppose them and to admonish them, you can't be a pastor. You can't be a man pleaser and be a faithful pastor. So this passage is telling us about the authority of an elder, the appointment of an elder, the qualification of an elder. What, you know, why, why is this important? All this is important because we're, we're not talking about theological minutia here. We're talking about God's mission to Louisville here. If we're going to be the kind of church that does the Great Commission and carries it out with integrity and honor and with fruitfulness, we have to be the kind of people that are well-ordered. And that means having leaders that fit a certain character qualification. And that means you've got to be a congregation who can identify those leaders. This is a part of the mission. This is not irrelevant minutia. This is a part of who we are, and it's how we're going to reach this community with integrity. And if we fall short of this, we'll fall short of of the mission. And our mission is very simple. We want people to know the gospel, that God loves sinners, that they're sinners, and that the only way for them to be reconciled to God is to believe in this man that God sent, the Son of God, who was crucified, buried, and raised up after three days, and who now is exalted at the right hand of God, and who can only be known and accessed by faith. We're trying to communicate that message to people, and that message transforms people. But that message won't have credibility if we ourselves aren't transformed and captivated by this word. So that's why this is important to us. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray if there are any here who don't know you and have not believed this message, I pray that you would awaken in their hearts faith in the Lord Jesus, repentance from their sin, that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would awaken in all of us a resolve to be faithful to this word. Pray for all those who may be aspiring to ministry, pastoral ministry, that you would renew in them the desire to be men of compelling holiness and integrity. Lord, I pray that for all of us who are serving as elders in this church, Lord, I pray you'd help us to be that way. And I pray that when we fail, you'd make us humble, quick to repent, men. So help us, Father. Protect us from the evil one. Lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Lord, make us an effective witness for you in this city. 
And Father, we pray for you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.